We're going to conclude this series today. Initially, I called the message, Loving Your Digital Neighbors, as we conclude this book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. I don't think we're going to get to the practical steps, but they're in the book. I want to talk about some of the foundation found in the gospel that gets us there. So we're going to do that for a few minutes. Uh, Can you put that first passage of scripture up there, Zach? One of the things I was thinking about this week was the clash of culture, right? The the culture of God and the, and the culture of, of the world, right? And uh, and there were moments on the trip where that that culture was clashing a little bit for me, and and where Josh was coming from, where I was coming from, and I think we need fresh expressions of the gospel like this so that these worlds can clash. And it's not a violent clash; it's a grace-filled clash of culture. But it's important to understand where it's coming from and the outrage that we feel in the world, maybe the outrage we have for the world or the the world has towards Jesus and the church or just expressions of outrage that happen in El Paso, that happen in Dayton, Ohio. This is outrage. This is unchecked anger, unsubmitted rage from hurt and pain. And we might be able to say, Lord, we don't know why, but if we start looking into stories and understanding stories, we'll start to understand why. It doesn't make it right, but it explains why things are happening. The hope of the gospel comes to situations like that, but it doesn't come unopposed. Because we're not living in this world by ourselves, fighting with weapons of this world, but there's spiritual forces at work. This is the truth, the hope of the the biblical worldview. Jesus himself said, If the world hates you, he says to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. That's why. They don't know him yet. Not yet. Josh didn't know him yet. If I had not come and spoken to them... They would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Biblical worldview helps us understand the fight that we're in, right? So the message of the gospel is offensive on some level for all of us. Repent and believe. This is a message that's offensive to my flesh as a person. I don't like to receive correction. It doesn't feel good. Does anyone like correction? Rebuke? It doesn't feel good to say, I need to change some stuff. We had a moment on the trip where some cultures clashed, and I kind of turned around and had a moment with two of the guys on our trip. And as soon as words were coming out of my mouth, I realized, nuts! There could have been a little bit more grace in that, right? 
And the Lord rebuked me for it. He said, don't come like that. And we worked it out as brothers in the camp. But there's moments where we need those rebukes. But the message is offensive to our pride and to our flesh. But it's life-giving to our spirit. It's offensive in good ways because it judges human wickedness and false righteousness. This is in the book as well. God allows his creation to do as it will, right? But he'll call it into account. And hopefully when we get to the end of our rope, he calls us back. And in it, he will never cease to pursue us, right? He convicts the world of wickedness and false righteousness. He rejects the wisdom of the world as foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, Josh, if you, uh, Zach, if you could put that up. Is that the, first, is that the Corinthians passage? Next one. Yeah. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? The message is foolishness. It doesn't make sense to the world. In what other kingdom is the last first? In what other kingdom do I find strength in my weakness? In what other kingdom do I find life through painful, dying processes? It's foolishness. It's upside down, but it's the way of the gospel because the wisdom of the world does not afford room for this kind of worldview and ultimately it leads to folly. What looks like wisdom won't get us where we want to go. The gospel is offensive in some senses because it ignites the battle between forces of darkness and light that exist around us. It's the catalyst for it. right? The gospel is offensive because it's focused on the identity of Jesus, on his death and his resurrection. We are fallen and only Christ can save us. So the crux is this. Every human on earth will have to grapple with the offense of the gospel, but it's on every follower of Jesus to match their actions to the message that we preach. We can't just say the gospel's offensive and then act offensively because we just think that the gospel, well, the gospel's offensive, so I can just point fingers and call people out and scream at them in megaphones and tell them they're going to hell. And then when they reject me, I can be like, well, the gospel said it'd be that way. Jesus said they'd hate me, right? But you don't got to be a prick, right? Excuse my language, but we don't have to be a jerk in the world. That's not the offensive part, because it's truth wrapped up in grace. So we come with love, we come with compassion, we come with empathy, we come with listening ears. We come in the midst of crisis, and sometimes we just sit next to crisis happening. We sit next to confessions of horrible things and don't say anything, but we look at people in the eyes like Christ looked at us when we came to Him, in our broken mess, in our pit, But at some point, that grace also has to have a message that says there's something that needs to change. The hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world that we're grappling with today in this culture say, nothing's wrong with me, I've just been born this way, and I don't need to change nothing. Too much grace, right? Yes, you're born that way. Yes, we're broken. And yes, He can heal us. Truth 
and grace. It's a delicate balance. And it's what I'm grappling with in my understanding of what a fresh expression of the gospel will look like where people come to Jesus in the woods and not in buildings because God is the same out there as he is in here. Fresh expressions of the gospel. We can find them in, in the Bible, in the church, and on a hike? For real? I believe more and more that's where people are going to encounter the truth of the gospel. Here's a bummer maybe for some of us. There's only two recorded conversations that Jesus had in church buildings in all of the gospels. All the rest of them happened out there. So this fresh expression of the gospel is only going back to the gospel that we were given by the Holy Spirit. And it's the gospel that got us here 2,000 years later, 8,000 miles away from Jerusalem. Neat. Still not meeting in church buildings. Even neater. So we have to consider something. Is it possible that maybe we're attaching our message of love, this gospel message as we understand it, maybe it's getting attached to cultural biases that we have. Maybe it's getting attached to racial frustrations or insecurities or our own spiritual brokenness. Maybe in that moment where I turned around and just had it out with my friend Josh, not for it wasn't, but it, there was a broken element of my spiritual discipline, some insecurities in the way that I approached him. Maybe some of that's going on. It'll happen. We're not perfect, but are we quick to repent? Are we quick to say the message that I'm sharing with you is the truth, but it came wrapped in the wrong package when it... The world doesn't expect us to be perfect, just aware of our own fallenness and brokenness. And in repenting those things, I had a chance to share some of my own brokenness and where that came from and why I was so passionate about the thing we were talking about because I didn't want my brother to get eaten by a bear. Not a bear bear in the woods, but a bear bear, right? Or a lion, right? First Peter says the enemy prowls around like a lion looking for somebody to devour. I don't want my friends devoured. But maybe I've got to check my approach sometimes, right? Research says that the attitudes of Americans outside the church towards the church in the United States are not good, right? Lifeway Research, Ed Stetzer, his group, says the attitudes out there about the body of Christ aren't good. It says that 79% of people agreed that expressions of Christian faith today are about more about organized religion than loving their neighbors, Guilty, right? 44% agreed that Christians get on people's nerves. I think we all get on people's nerves, but like, there's reasons why sometimes. I, I, there used to be radio hosts on a Christian radio station I listened to that I, these guys, I'm like, would you one day, have a bad day once? You know, like, have a day that isn't perfect once. Like, that gets on my nerves. What doesn't get on people's nerves is believers in Jesus who confess their sin publicly and repent. That's real. That draws people towards something they can identify with because no one can identify with perfect. Those we are called to love have the impression that we aren't engaging them with the love that looks like Jesus. That's what they're convinced of. When we come with an us versus them mentality, when we throw internet bombs, 
right? Throwing these things into the middle. And then getting likes from 400 people who have the same socioeconomic background as we do. The same theological background as we do. And we say, yeah, 100 people liked it. 100 people just like you. Right? Where in our internet engagement, where in our online engagement, in these places of outrage, do we have voices that speak in that are different than ours? That might check what we put up because we forget that not everyone's in the choir, right? To hear perspectives that are not our own, not necessarily that we would agree with them, but that we would understand them and have empathy and compassion. These things, right? Moving away from an us versus them mentality to say that we are image bearers of God. We bear his image. All of us. That's biblical. It says we're all created in the image of God, man and woman. When we get hyper-focused on demanding that people's behavior changes faster than we can build relationship with them, that's when it doesn't look like the love of Jesus, right? But even in the face of opposition, because opposition will come. That's the truth part. Even in the face of opposition, when we're dealing with individuals in society that are making our culture different than the way that we liked our culture. We liked it a certain way, see? It used to kind of toe the line on Christian faith and then hard left. Where'd it go? Where'd everybody go? Where'd they go? How do we engage people with this message of hope? Love, right? John 13. We're going to look at this real quick. Zach, if you could throw that up. Oh, we've got to keep going. Skipped a few. Next one, Zach. Uh, John. You're going to make me open my real Bible? <laughs> Jesus models this for us what to do in... In moments of opposition, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you there's power in it. Lord, we pray that if there's any distraction in the space, Lord, right now, that it would leave, it would be gone. It would flee in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would bring peace to our ears and our hearts that we might hear your word. In the name of Jesus. Your word is powerful, it does not return void. Or I just get a sense that you're you're doing something with some people right now that we would hear. Or you're about to equip some people with what they need to go out and have a different conversation with someone they disagree with or they feel like is opposing them. And we pray that your word goes forward in Jesus' name. In John's Gospel, this is right before... Jesus prepares to go to the cross. It says it was just before the Passover festival. We're going to take communion together in a minute. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to portray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. 
So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel as he wrapped, that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And the Lord said, Simon Peter replied, Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. There was opposition, it says. And that is why you said not everyone was clean. Verse 12. When they had finished washing their feet, he put on clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. You have set an example. I have set an example that you should follow and do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The reason why Jesus had to wash the feet of his disciples that night in the house, in the place where they were breaking bread before Jesus would go to the cross to forgive our sins, was because there was an important character missing from this story. In first century Judaism, there was a servant that would sit at the front door of the house and wash the feet of anyone who would enter the house. Now, the disciples earlier in the Gospels preceding this had been having an argument about who was the best. If we're in an argument about who's the best, the least likely thing that we're going to do is go and serve the person who we think we're better than. Right? Who's the best? The way of this world or the way of Christ? Do we turn it into a battle? Who's the best? I can just serve them. So here's 12 disciples with dirty feet, sitting around in a room with feet that hadn't been washed from the dust of the streets of Palestine and open-toed sandals. Not one of them would get down to wash the feet of the disciples, their brothers. So Jesus did it. Jesus set the pace for us to have empathy. He understood the broken realities of the world. He understood the broken realities of the pride in that room, even. He realized that people needed love and not rejection. He could have rebuked his disciples in that moment, and he didn't. He loved them through the moment and washed their feet and taught them a lesson. How easy would it have been to go beyond the men in the room to reject the men who had been persecuting him, the religious leaders of his own people, who had been calling him down and trying to trap him and trick him and kill him. In the face of opposition, he loved his disciples, and then he loved the leaders in his own people group. And through loving them by dying on the cross, he loved the whole world. Empathy. What does empathy look like in my life when I'm faced with opposition? What does it look like when somebody opposes me, and I come with the truth of the gospel? It's offensive, but not in a way that we're hurting people. It's offensive because people are dealing with their own brokenness. In humility, Jesus took the very nature of a servant, bearing an image and realizing that others bear the image. Jesus had a worldview that said, everyone can come to me. And it changes the way that we view people. 
this love of people will be sacrificial because it's going to cost us. When I sat by the river, when I sat by the lake, I just had this sense that things are really starting to change in culture. I grapple between these places of just trying to pastor and shepherd people in this congregation and the community and just saying, no, 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 it'll be just fine. Just, just don't worry about it. And running around like a chicken with my head cut off and Chicken Little saying the sky is falling because we can't go as long as it takes for the sun to rise and set before mass casualties are breaking out across our nation and our world. And people are yelling and screaming at each other. And the Lord said, prepare. Prepare, prepare. Know my word. God has been saying that to me over and over. Know my word. And I'll just say it because I, this, the sick thing that I got, the sick, exciting feeling that I got in my, the pit of my stomach was that there might be a day where you don't have it on paper anymore. Know my word. Right? I feel a mandate from the Lord to continue to graciously prepare this congregation for a different season. It's exciting. Because people in crisis turn to Jesus. When pastoring at Eastside Fourscore Church, there was a Tuesday in September in 2001, where in the morning a servant wasn't planned, and by 7 p.m., 900 people packed out an auditorium because something happened on a morning on a Tuesday in September of 2001. Crisis brings people to Jesus. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. And if his people who follow him faithfully day in and day out in crisis and not in crisis aren't prepared to deal with the triage that's coming in our doors, then what? Not to be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus has won the war. But will we wash the feet of people who are different than us? Will we go into our community? Will we go down to Walter and grill burgers for kids? Even if they cuss us out. David Alvaretto, he's, August 22nd, there's a whole bunch of us going down to grill burgers at Walter. And he said, uh, well, you know, Pastor, you're going to hear some language down there. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, David. I appreciate that. I'm good with that, right? Because if we go down there and we're prayed up and we're fellowshiped up because we're skating and we're eating bread together, and we're studying God's word together. Church just happened on a Wednesday afternoon down at Walter at the skate park. Hallelujah. Right? Preparing a people to go to a new place. So pray for me in that. Because it's bigger. It's a bigger dream than... Right? With our remaining time, we're going to take communion together. We're going to pray for wisdom within the, the body of believers to engage a hurting and broken world. We're going to take communion and we're going to break up into groups of three or four or five and we're just going to pray. And we're going to ask for a prayer request and the question will be up here in a minute after we celebrate communion. The question is this, when considering the opportunity to love in the face of opposition, the best way to pray for me is dot, dot, dot. That'll be the question. When considering the opportunity to love in the face of opposition, the best way to pray for me is.
As we celebrate communion, it's birthed out of John 13. It's birthed out of this place where Jesus, while they were celebrating this meal, where Jesus took the bread and the cup and said, this is my body bruised for you. Eat this bread in memory of me, right? Take this cup, which is the representation of my shed blood on the cross, which is the redemption for your sins for all of eternity, and drink. And do this in celebration and remembrance. Celebration and remembrance. We have power today to do what we've talked about because of the shed blood of Jesus. We're going to worship this morning. There's a, there's a worship song that, that I, we're going to, there's, the words will be up here, but we're just, we're going to get our bread and then come back down. But as we go read the words, it's an admonishment to the church that turns into praise. So Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We ask that you would give us strength to love well in the face of opposition. Your gospel's offensive, but it doesn't mean we have to be. We can love, we can lay our lives down, we can have empathy. Lord, we can have humility. Lord, we can bear your image and we can make sacrifices because you died for us. So we celebrate today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.